Hello and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and here to talk with me today about Pixar's new movie, Luca, is Karen Hahn, Slate staff writer and culturista. How are you doing, Karen? Good. How are you? So nice to see you. Um, I guess to peek behind the curtain, we taped Culture Gap Fest this morning, and now about two hours after we finished doing that, we are chatting again. Yeah, I don't know if we've ever podcasted twice in a day, and we certainly have never podcasted together twice in a day on the same movie, which is actually something we try to avoid doing, having these kind of pileups in, in podcasting. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad we get to talk about this one twice, because since we talked about it, I started rethinking about it, and then I went back and rewatched as much of it as I could fit in between oh. sessions. Uh-huh. And I have new thoughts about it that I wouldn't have brought in before, plus some things that I didn't get a chance to say in that segment, because of course, it's only 10 minutes and we don't spoil. Whereas here, we have all the time and ability to spoil that we need. I'm so curious what your new thoughts are. That's so exciting. Okay, well, first of all, I think that I liked it more the second time. I went in without the expectations that it be one of the kind of grand uh, philosophical Pixar epics, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, in the course of this Mm -hmm. conversation, which it isn't and doesn't try to be and shouldn't try to be, and which I thought the first time as well. But since I went in sort of knowing that its pleasures are on a smaller scale, you could say a more human scale, although this whole movie (laughs) is about shifting between being human and not. So I think I enjoyed it more, but I also saw more of, I think, my problems in its, its maybe world building, especially mm-hmm. in the second half. And um, and so I have more details about that, that that we can get into in a bit. First, let's do our, our go around. And just let me just quickly ask you if you liked it and if you would send people to see it, since this is not about reviewing, but about getting into the <laughs> nitty gritty. I really liked Luca. I thought it was so, so cute and sweet. And I actually did, um, the last time that I called my mom to talk to her, I was like, get on my Disney Plus account and watch Luca. It's so cute and just so easy to watch. It's just 95 minutes. It's not a long movie at all. It's very easy to watch, easy to get in and out of. And it's just very cute. I like it a lot. Highly recommend, especially because it is just on Disney Plus. So if you're already subscribed, it's not like you're paying the extra like premiere fee to watch it. Yeah, actually, that was an interesting marketing choice because this was meant to be a theatrical release at first, right? And I guess because yeah. of a combination of the pandemic and piles up pileups of movies and it being a kid's movie, they just figured that they were going to go this way. But you're right. It's not even a premiere. I don't know what you would call it, but it's not one of those new releases that you briefly have to pay a lot for. So if you've got Disney+, Plus, I would certainly watch it. And it yeah. made me wish that I had little enough kids to watch it with <laughs> them because I think this is, I mean, actually, if you were a teenager who didn't think you were too cool for everything, you would probably love Luke. <laughs> the problem yeah. is getting those kids to see these kind of movies in the first place. But I think for any kid who's sort of 12 or under, this movie is just perfect summertime viewing. Yeah. To circle back a little bit, if we weren't in a pandemic and if things weren't the way that they were, I would have loved to see this in the theater. Because I'm sure we'll get into this, but one of the things that I really love about this is all of the detail that they put into the visuals. It's a really gorgeous film to look at. And it's so fluid and kinetic that the fact that you might only be able to see it on a small screen is kind of a bummer. That said, like many of Pixar's movies, it's not like a kid's movie. It's not like you're only going to enjoy it if you're a child or young teenager. I never once felt like I was being like pandered to or talked down to while I was watching this. And I, I think it hits a good balance in that sense. There isn't too much peril or anything but they're not trying to candify the story in order for kids to feel more at home with it. That's at least what I thought. Yeah, that's definitely true. And by saying that I wish I had little kids to watch it with or littler, 
I guess I don't mean that it's only a kid's movie, mm-hmm. but just that, especially on the second watching, it really struck me that it understands the psychology of childhood, in particular in relationship to the friendship of the two boys, which we'll get into. I think that's the strongest element in the movie, and that there are some other relationships and characters that aren't as clearly drawn. But mm-hmm. maybe we should just quickly set up what the movie is and um, and where we, we begin. It, so we actually begin a little bit outside the story, right, with two characters we don't see that much, with some fishermen in a boat off what appears to be this sort of beautiful mountainous coast. It turns out to be the Italian Riviera. And our title character, Luca, kind of sneaks into the first sequence. Do you want to describe his appearance? Yeah. So what the first scene really does is that it sets up the fact that there are this sea monster community exists and the fishermen and uh, the Italian people who live just on the coast have a very superstitious sort of relationship with them where they regard them as monsters, monsters, like as something to be feared. And as they're fishing, they start panicking when they see the shadow because they're like, oh no, there's like a sea monster here. Like, what are we going to do? Like try to, and try to kill it. But it turns out when you go under the water, it's just Luca. He's a little like green, blue, little fish boy. He's so cute. And all he's doing is sort of emulate, like everything that the sea monsters do has a parallel above water where Luca's family seems to make their main living hurting a bunch of goatfish. So Luca's hurting this flock of very absent-minded fish, just like if he was like a shepherd in the mountains or whatever, and lives a very normal life by all means, like with his mother and father and his grandmother who all habitate in one little cave. And we should mention that the the main character, Luca, is voiced by Jacob Tremblay really well, I thought. He, he gets a lot into, into his vocal characterization. And his parents are played by Jim Gaffigan and Maya Rudolph, both great also, in roles that I think are a little underwritten. I wish we had even more of those two fish parents. And his grandmother, who I think has a really great gravelly voice and who becomes sort of a stealth important character in the movie, is voiced by Sandy Martin. <laughs> yeah, I agree about the parents, although I will say I feel like just because of the scale of it, maybe there wasn't as much space for them to be further developed. But what they do get to do is extremely funny and definitely made me laugh out loud more than a couple times. Um, but yeah, Jacob Tremblay is so, so good um, to the point that I'm also now like sort of surprised that he's as young as he is. And I like went back to his Wikipedia to check how old he is. And he's been working since he was like six, seven, eight, which is mind blowing to me because now he's only 14. And I'm like, you can give this accomplished of a performance. Well, you've seen Room, right? I mean, he's really astonishing in Room. And I think he was probably, he's a little bit older than he's supposed to be, but I'm I'm sure he's only about eight or so when he did that that role. But Mm -hmm. yeah, he captures something so great in this role. And he, I feel like he truly is still acting because, you know, he's not just being a kid because not only because he has to make himself into this, you know, inhuman, half-human, shape-shifting fish, but because I feel like he's playing someone younger and more innocent than he is. And yet he doesn't, Mm -hmm. as you said earlier, candify it, right? I mean, there's not an acuteness to that character. There's something very sweet about his naivete. Yeah. And I guess to continue on, we see this boat dropping various human artifacts into the water in its panic to get away. And as Luca, who is clearly curious about the human world, starts to investigate these objects, he ends up meeting Alberto Scorfano, who is a slightly older sea monster voiced by Jack Dylan Grazer, who seems to be a lot more worldwide and has a lot more confidence that Luca just doesn't have. But the sea monsters, in turn, are scared of the humans in the same way that the humans are scared of them. And Luca's parents in particular make it very, very clear that he's never supposed to go onto land. But Alberto, of course, immediately is like, what are you afraid of? It's great up here. Come on up here with me. 
Right. And then this begins my favorite part of the movie, which is about the first 20 minutes or so. I think this is a kind of a Pixar thing sometimes. The Pixar movies will peak early, right? I mean, the famous case (laughs) being Up that has that extraordinary montage that makes everyone in the world cry in the first 15 (laughs) minutes or so. Um, And this movie, too, I feel like never gets better than it is in the part where we're exploring the friendship of of these Mm -hmm. two kids. Um, Just all of those montages, the sort of happiness montages that you see inside the brain of Luca are so extraordinary in the way they kind of evoke the feeling just with music and and movement and color, the feeling of excitement that you get when you're discovering a new world with a new friend. There's also some kind of action montages with them that show them, you know, building that Vespa together and (laughs) crashing it into the sea. And those are usually accompanied with some kind of Italian pop music from the time this is set in, (laughs) which is a vague kind of 1950s, 60s period. But my favorite montages are the ones that use this Dan Romer score. I have the melody in my head right now. It's like this wonderful theme melody. Maybe we can put a little bit of it in the podcast. But I think we hear that theme in in all of the dream sequences, all the moments that you have Luca fantasizing. And my favorite one of those, and the one that, the one that made me cry, the one moment that I got a little bit misty in this movie, Aww. was the one where they're riding the Vespa and Imagination together. Do you remember? Yeah. They're sort of riding through this yellow field of flowers, mm-hmm. and they ride up a big ramp. And it's almost just like a fantasy transposition of the stuff they're already doing. And it sort of shows yeah. how great it feels to be a kid doing that. Um, so that, anyway, those montages really, really got me. Maybe it's because I'm so attached to their friendship that the second half of the movie is not as interesting to me because it's more focused on on other stuff, which we'll get to. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely agree about the fantasy sequences. Like, I think that's one of the things that makes this movie stand out because whenever Luca has these flights of fancy, they're always visualized in this sort of brief break from reality where he's just seeing this fantasy world play out. It's clearly even more stylized than the world itself is as an animated film. Like when they first, when he's imagining them riding their Vespa or later um, the moon sequence, which we'll talk about it's so beautiful and so fanciful in a way that doesn't feel uh, in- disingenuous at all. Like the wild Vespas, right? The wild Vespas yeah. that they see riding next to them. And just this idea, I mean, just the layers of fantasy that you're in right then, where it's like, it's a sea creature who can turn into a boy, and he's having a fantasy about riding a Vespa, and he's fantasizing that there are living Vespas. <laughs> it's just like this wonderful nested kind of whimsy. Yeah, it's so, so sweet. And I do feel like maybe the reason that the second half doesn't ring as well, at least for you, is like the beats are pretty familiar. And it's always one of those frustrating cases where you want to yell, like, just talk to him or like, just express your feelings. And that'll basically solve all the problems that you're having. Um, Yeah, this movie needed more obstacles, I feel like. It doesn't really (laughs) have a villain. It sort of has Ercole, right, who we'll talk about, who's the bully on the Vespa that they meet in the human town. But (laughs) but really, I guess, I mean, not every movie needs to have a creature that is a villain, necessarily, a being that's a villain, right? It could be, like, some sort of circumstance. But Mm -hmm. this movie is so sweet that, in a way, it doesn't need that much conflict. I mean, I feel like the conflict about the, um, the interpersonal relationships of the kids and their parents is really enough to carry it. Yeah, I totally agree. And speaking of which, that conflict comes in almost immediately because as Luca and Alberto grow closer, his parents start to notice that he isn't really hurting the goatfish. Something obviously is going on. So once they realize that Luca has been going above ground, they decide they need to take drastic action. So they call in his uncle Ugo, who is a anglerfish who lives in the very depths of the ocean to come and take him away for a little bit. It's sort of like, I guess, the sea monster equivalent of boarding school where it's like, you're going to go 
somewhere really remote for a while so that you can't cause trouble here at home. But Luca, horrified by this thought, runs away to Alberto, who decides that they are now going to move from the little remote tower that they've been in to the human town um, that's just across the bay. Um, So now is their time to actually try to integrate into the human world, which is terrifying for Luca and apparently not terrifying for Alberto, who has this false confidence, as we mentioned, and thinks he knows everything about human life already. Yeah, that's a good summary that gets us to the shore and to the second half of the movie, or a little bit more than half, where I feel like things take a different turn for me, not as interesting a turn, but we will get there. The last thing I wanted to say about the the mainly underwater segment at the beginning is that Uncle Ugo, the, the see-through uncle, He's so as, good. as Jacob Drum's like awesome, uh, is voiced by Sasha Baron Cohen, hilariously. Mm-hmm. Uh, he only appears in two scenes, and one of them is the post-credit stinger. So if you do watch this at home on Disney+, Plus, stick around through all the credits. Don't let it scoot you through the credits the way that streamers like to do because uh, the stinger scene is excellent. Yeah, everything with Uncle Ugo is so funny, from the character design to Sasha Baron Cohen's voice performance to the way that he's animated and the character details. Everything about him is so funny. He's definitely, I think, a standout character. (laughs) It it does bring up questions about the world building of the fish world that I wish could have been explored. Not that I want this to be some giant epic that's all concerned with world building. But I want to know why he lives at the bottom of the ocean, what the culture of the ocean is like. I wish we (laughs) knew a little bit more. We see a few neighbors at the very beginning beginning but basically after this movie moves on land it stays on land and i kind of wish that we'd had a little bit more of an establishment of what was going on back in the ocean while all the events of the second half take place yeah, I mean, that is the funny thing about Ugo, where he's so different from Luca and his family's design that it suggests that all the sea monsters are not as homogenous as we see them. Like, he's really the only one who looks kind of creepy, whereas Luca, Alberto, and the rest of the family all look like they are relatively in the same family. Right. I was even asking, I was asking myself, is there, are these like epigenetic changes where he got that <laughs> way because he went to the bottom of the sea? Or maybe he's an adopted fish, so he doesn't look like his brother? <laughs> anyway, I, and not all of that has to be answered, but the the undersea world was so beautiful the way it was animated Mm. and it was so imaginative in the little bits of it that we did see for example the goatfish shepherd situation that i sort of wished we had known well for example there don't seem to be schools right i mean Mm -hmm. we'll get to the idea of school later on but luca is so fascinated by this idea of going to study yet he and alberto both seem to know how to read and write i don't know i just wanted to know what sort (laughs) of culture obtained in the ocean Yeah, so the school storyline comes in where once they're at the human town, they run into this girl named Julia, who, like them, is a bit of a social outcast because she's the only one who really stands up to the local bully, Urkele, who we mentioned earlier. So when Julia realizes that she sort of has these kindred spirits around her, they all decide that they want to enter into a Portoroso Cup triathlon, which involves, number one, swimming laps, number two, eating pasta, and number three, riding a bike through town. The complication is that neither of the boys can do the swimming bit because, as we learn, if sea monsters touch the water, that part of them will go back to being sea monsters, so like scaly and blue, whereas if they stay dry, they will remain in human form. And they start training together to beat Ercole at the competition. Julia, because she wants to beat him and upend this reign of tyranny that he holds over the local kids. And Luca and Alberto, because they want to use the prize money to buy a Vespa and roam around Italy in freedom. But as they all start to get to know each other, Luca becomes really fascinated with how smart Julia is, what she knows about, like, especially about space and stars and the moon, and becomes very jealous of the fact that she eventually will be going back to school once the summer ends. 
Right. And I think the funnest new character who gets introduced in this this section of the movie that you haven't mentioned mentioned as much is is the dad, um Julia's mm-hmm. dad, who is this curious mixture of of qualities. He's this huge, imposing, forbidding-looking man. <laughs> uh, he's a fisherman, which is naturally scary to two fish boys. Um uh, but he also turns out pretty pretty quickly actually to have this very gentle, loving, paternal side where he really wants to take in these two boys. He thinks human boys at the beginning. And he doesn't really ask any questions about mm-hmm. what they're doing in town. All he needs to know is they're here for the race. Uh, he eventually gives his daughter permission to do the race after first disapproving of it. And then he starts to become this really gentle sort of figure. I, I loved the moment in particular. I didn't mention that he's missing one arm, mm-hmm. right? And so he has his sweater kind of pinned up where his arm would be. And there's this moment that you think he's going to tell this sort of hardcore fisherman story about how he lost his arm. And then he laughs it off and says, no, no, I was just born that way, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I thought was a nice subversion of macho expectation. Yeah. I mean, it definitely sets it up to be like, oh, like a sea monster took his arm. And that's what he jokes around with initially. And it, it seems like a good reason for him to hate sea monsters. But again, it's not that at all. He's just a very sweet, sweet, sweet man. Something I noticed about his cooking for them is that he always seems to make pasta with pesto, which maybe mm-hmm. has to do with the the fish factor, right? I mean, you never see these fish boys eating anything from the sea. Although you do hear Luca's grandmother talk about sea cucumbers being her favorite snack, which is sort of between <laughs> a living thing and a vegetable, I guess. But that was another world-building question for me, was are they vegetarians? Do they only eat algae or something like that? Because otherwise, they'd be in the awkward position of having to be cannibals on land. Yeah, I wonder if they did that partially because of the fish thing and also because it complicates the idea of like eating meat at all whatsoever if these sea monsters are part part fish as we're sort of led to believe but i I also wanted to point out the other member of the marco valdo household is their cat who is so incredibly animated and the first of the family to realize that the boys aren't humans because the cat manages to spot them getting a little bit wet thereby uh, showing their scales the cat is just so well animated and so suspicious of the boys for such a long time the cat is a great creation animation wise mm-hmm. and also love how he echoes the dad right i mean it's sort of yeah. a feline equivalent like this very bulky like cat with a mustache yeah <laughs> So to me, the least interesting element of this last part of the movie is the race itself. And I do Mm -hmm. feel a little bit like the race was put in there to answer this problem of the movie needing conflict and obstacles that I mentioned earlier. The triathlon that you mentioned is about to happen in the town. They divide up the tasks and decide who's going to bike, who's going to swim. The boys obviously can't do the swimming part and who's going to eat the pasta, the most fun part of the marathon. And then there's this um, there's this portion of the movie that's sort of training montages and trash talk with Hercule about the race. Did you agree with me that that was a somewhat weak plot thread that could maybe have been worked on or taken out? Yeah, I, th- I, I I agree that it's not the strongest part of the movie. I guess, as you're saying, the problem is just like, what is the driving force of this otherwise? Because I think there is a way to tell this story in a, in a more, I guess, sort of indie film kind of way where it really is just about their growing relationships and doesn't have to include this bit about a race. But at least for a, a movie like this, which is a little bit simpler, I think, it's harder to get away with that or harder to maintain, especially a younger attention span. Because like, if it really is just about the these kids figuring out what they want out of life. It's also maybe harder to wrap up in an hour and a half, right? Where it's like, it implies a longer passage of time than like a week or so over the summer. 
Right. Yeah, I think that there's nothing wrong with the race part. It just doesn't feel quite up to the level of imaginativeness that the first half of the movie evinces, you know. But there's yeah. still imaginative stuff going on in the second half, some of which involves the parents coming onto land. I really liked that scene yes, when the parents so first good. come onto land and realize that they don't know what their son would look like as a human yeah. being. So they, they face this little piazza full of kids and, uh, and have no choice but to arrange to get every single one of these kids wet in order to see if they turn into the Luca that they know. That's a really well choreographed scene. So, so funny. Yeah, the mom basically just kicks or hip checks every single child into the central fountain in the piazza to the point that later on all the kids are like still scared of them and try to avoid them. This is something I kind of loved about this part is it's almost not American and it's lack of concern for those kids just being punted (laughs) into the water. There's also the kids that the parents knock into the the bay when they first, right? They think he's Luca. And there's like literally a little child crying over his lost ice cream cone in the water and they just leave they just move yeah. on to look for their son it's so funny it's so 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 funny and i i think like benefits from being a little more cavalier about it um than trying to be like precious about like n- never like push children which is like again <laughs> don't actually do that in real life but we know that already don't do that yeah to me that was just the logic of an old tom and jerry cartoon or something yeah, i think kids exactly. would completely roll with it yeah <laughs> So to me, the most interesting conflict in the second part of the movie has to do with the sort of love triangle. I mean, it's not romantic love. And we can we mm-hmm. can talk later about the idea of gay subtext, yes or no, which has been much discussed, read this movie. But mm-hmm. let's just say a friendship love triangle forms itself uh, among the three main kids, Luca, Alberto, and Julia, when Luca starts to in a way, sort of move his transference from from Alberto to Julia, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that really intense, intimate friendship that we saw grow up between the two boys at the beginning uh, doesn't come to an end, but it changes and the way friendships change as you grow mm-hmm. up. And Julia is a different friend who offers different things. She's a human being, obviously, so she knows a different kind of world. She also seems to be really into her studies. She only mm-hmm. spends her summers in Puerto Rosso and goes to Geneva to school for the rest of the year with her mom. This is all established just really quickly in a conversation with her her and Luca. But she seems to be kind of bookish. She has a book about the stars that Luca gets fascinated with. Alberto, meanwhile, has told him that the stars are sardines. I love this moment, actually. This actually <laughs> seemed like it could be part of some old folklore or a myth or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Alberto's idea about the sky, which of course he only knows since emerging from the water, is that it's another surface of water and that the stars are all sar- sardines who are swimming against that surface. Yeah, and we briefly touched on this earlier, but that scene is just so beautiful where there's that giant glowing moonfish and all these smaller fish flocking around it. It's really, really beautiful. And briefly, we should mention the director of Luca, Enrico Casarosa. If you guys remember the short film La Luna, which played before Brave several years ago at this point, I think you'll recognize some of the stylistic signatures there. Like that one is also about kind of a bunch of smaller objects making up the moon. And the dad designs are honestly also pretty similar, but not in a way that makes me think like, oh, it's the same thing. Like, I love that design. I'll I'll watch that in any movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, and Rico Casarosa, is, he's been at Pixar for 20 years or something like that. Mm-hmm. He's worked on, you know, Up, he worked on the Cars movies. I think he's been more of like a background, you know, design artist. Um, but this and La Luna have been his only directorial outings. And you're right that they have something in common and that they both have a lyrical feeling and a more handmade feeling vis-a-vis the animation. And I'm not going to get into it because I'm going to get the technical terms wrong and not understand <laughs> what is what. This clearly is digital animation, but I think it's based on a lot of, of different styles that are not necessarily that Pixar 
associated in general, like uh, yeah. stop motion animation. You can sort of see that in the plasticity of the figures and watercolor. Apparently, Casa Rosa made a storyboard of watercolors for, you know, all of the big shots in this movie. So I think it's been deliberately created to be a little more handmade feeling and a little softer edged than your average, you know, very crisp, hyper real and primary saturated Pixar movie. And it honestly really benefits from that, at least in my view. Oh, it looks gorgeous, especially yeah. the town. I mean, the, it, plot-wise, my, my favorite part might not be on land, but the way the town is designed is just so beautiful. It reminds me in many ways of a Miyazaki movie who loves to set his movies on, on hillsides, steep hillsides <laughs> by the ocean. And also it's, you know, invoking Italian cinema all the time. It's, did you notice, by the way, there's like, there's, I think there's a reference to Fellini, Marcello Mastroianni makes it in there. The, Mar- the Marcello headshot is so funny. <laughs> I can't remember when the Marcello headshot comes up. I think it's like they look to him as sort of like an idol. Like they have a little cutout of basically like his headshot that they oh, look right, at. Oh, like, right, among their collection of human things. Yeah. You're right. And, but there's, yeah. and then there's also the very, the very first boat we see, the fisherman's boat, is called the Gelsomina, which is the Giulietta Massina character in La Strada. There's all mm-hmm. these little shout-outs to Italy in there, which I particularly love because there's an Italian making them. You know, I feel like yeah, it's, it's yeah. coming from somebody who really knows it's not like that culture. weirdly fetishistic or anything yeah right it doesn't it doesn't feel like he's just sort of name checking to prove his his cred you know it feels like he, <laughs> he really cares about making this town kind of deeply structured and of course those movie posters would be around that town in in that mm-hmm. time in the 1960s yeah and i also want to say the, the the food looks really really good i think this is the first time that like a cgi film has like nailed food looking good like, whenever um, the dad brings out the plates of pesto pasta, I'm like, that looks really, really good. That <laughs> Wait, doesn't look like... you think the food in Ratatouille looked good? Oh, okay, that's fair. Yeah, okay, this and Ratatouille. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> you don't want your food to be too hyper-real. It has to have some soft edges, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's why, like, people are so obsessed with all the food shots in Ghibli movies. Because, like, it, it looks so, like, savory. Like, you can basically smell it coming off the screen. Like, that's the <laughs> ideal of Right. Um, Ponyo's ham. Food. That's kind of the, the, the platonic idea. ham! <laughs> I love Fanya. Okay, um, so <laughs> as the three kids start to wrestle with basically like feeling like they're losing a best friend, at least on Alberto's side, Alberto starts to be a little more possessive of Luca, a little more rude to Julia. So as this conflict keeps growing, Alberto, in a very kind of impetuous move, reveals that he's a sea monster to Julia, basically to try to prove to Luca that they're never going to be accepted by humans and they too need to stick together. But Luca, instead of also admitting to Julia that he's a sea monster, at least straight away, instead acts afraid of Alberto, says, oh no, there's a sea monster, and essentially chases Alberto off, especially as other kids arrive on the scene and start to scream and like yell like, oh, we have to kill him or whatever, and Alberto leaves. And that's kind of the big emotional break in the film. Yeah, it's actually a really surprising betrayal because Luca has been so enamored, and Luca is just in general such a (laughs) conflict-averse and very sweet character, you know? So Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, I almost feel like there wasn't enough of a, of a scene between the two of them to win their their friendship back. It's another moment where I would have liked one more emotional beat because, you know, between sort of leaving him for Julia in a way or not leaving him, but, you know, shifting his friendship focus from from him to another person and then pretending not to know him, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty harsh moment for Alberto. Yeah, I mean, it's really dark, especially because the movie sets up the fact that, like, the fishermen basically will hunt the sea monsters if they find them. The stakes aren't just they're going to chase him out of town. The stakes are they're going to kill Alberto if they find him. So the moment, like, it feels 
really bad, which is the ultimate goal of that scene is to trigger that emotion within you as you're watching it. But it also feels like one of the deeper moments in this movie, which otherwise can sometimes feel a little bit light. Karen, I'm going to stop you for just a moment for a word from our sponsor this week, Talkspace. Before we get back to the show, I'd also like to remind listeners to join Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get access to bonus episodes of shows like The Culture Gab Fest, my own weekly show, The Political Gab Fest, and Slow Burn. Plus, of course, you get no ads. You can sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash plus. Okay, back to the conversation. So once Alberto's gone, Luca, of course, immediately starts feeling really guilty because he's a good boy. And as he talks to Julia about what's going on, he also tells her that he's a sea monster. She, of course, isn't like horrified by him and instead tells him that he needs to leave because she's afraid that he's going to get hurt if he stays in the human town. And Luca, now leaving the human town, tries to find Alberto to apologize for what happened and to try to talk things through, which is where we find out that Alberto has been on land because years, well, I don't know, years, months, days ago, a while ago at least, his father abandoned him and he's just been waiting for him to come back and now he's afraid that Luca is also going to leave him. And Luca, as he hears this, finally plucks up the courage that he's really been trying to muster up this whole time and decides that he's going to do the triathlon himself. Obviously, both uh, Julia and Alberto are kind of horrified by this idea because they know that there's no way that he can swim without turning back into a sea monster. But in order to try to circumvent anyone from finding out that he's a sea monster, he puts on this giant diving bell and slowly walks as the triathlon begins on the ocean floor there and back as his part of the swim race. Right. And for the race having been built up to for so much of the movie, we get through (laughs) it really quickly. It's not the end of the movie by any means. In fact, most of the conflict resolution happens after the race. But all I remember about the race basically is that is that Alberto eats his plate of pasta, right? (laughs) There's not really any sense of what that competition is, whether it's how much you eat or, you know, how fast you eat it. It seems to be just finishing a bowl of pasta in time to start the next right in time to start the next leg and then we go to the bicycle part of the race yeah and as we've seen like in the film like luca at the beginning of the movie like a lot of the movie was about luca learning how to walk learning how to move his human body and as a result riding a bike was like a huge challenge for him and not something that he was innately good at so the fact that he's actually biking well now is a big deal but then it begins to rain unfortunately um, which means that if he stays out of shelter and continues to bike the race people are going to find out that he's a sea monster so as he tries to figure out what to do, he's waiting under this awning when he suddenly sees Alberto running up the course towards him, carrying an umbrella for him to use. But Ercole, who obviously doesn't understand what's going on and just knows innately that he doesn't like these two kids, trips Alberto, forcing him to fall and drop the umbrella, which makes him revert to his sea monster state for everyone to see. Yes. And this is quite a scene. I mean, if you were going to read this movie as a kind of gay allegory, right, which some people have or have suggested that it should be, this would be the outing scene, basically, Mm -hmm. right? They're sort of outed by Hercule and by the rain. But that also means that it's a chance for Julia to ally herself with them, which she immediately does. Yeah. So... Once Alberto's revealed, obviously everyone, especially Urkele, is gonna is saying, like, I'm gonna be the one to kill the sea monster. But as you mentioned, Julia's like, now is her time to shine. She crashes her bike into Urkele 
to prevent him from uh, hitting Alberto. And also Luca at this point, who has faced his fear and gone out to save Alberto and pulled him up onto the bike. And they go onto this very, very, very steep fall, which we've seen repeatedly throughout the movie as a part of the course that's difficult to navigate and not crash on. But they manage to get to the very end of the course and their bike crosses the finish line right before Hercules does and they win the race. And so the big pause then is that all the townspeople have seen these two sea monsters the race almost doesn't matter at this point where it's like there's two sea monsters among us what are we going to do and as we mentioned julia's dad is such a sweet figure and he's kind of the first one to step forward and at first you think he's going to be the first one to try to kill these monsters but he immediately accepts them in front of everyone and that leads to the rest of the townspeople also sort of realizing that these sea monsters have been among us all along. And that's also the moment there's this sort of like, I am Spartacus coming out (laughs) of some other fish, spontaneously fish people in the town who we did not know were were of that species. I think including the old ladies, right? The pair of old ladies that we've seen throughout. Um, We see them walking around (laughs) licking ice cream cones and being sort of cranky crones in the town. And there's this great moment that they come out as two fish women. Yeah. very very cute we should talk a little bit about the gay allegory in this is that do you think a compelling reading of this movie is it an important or necessary one i think it's a compelling one i think there's certainly an argument to be made for it Uh, i don't know necessarily that it's a necessary one i that's two necessaries in a row but you get what i mean i don't think like if i was going to describe this to someone in a sentence i wouldn't say it's a gay love story for instance But the director has actually talked about this a little bit where he's like, this is not an explicitly gay story. Like what this, what the relationships are is ultimately what you bring to it and what you're reading from it. And that's more important than I guess what the actual story is. Yeah, and I think it accomplishes that really well. I mean, I could certainly imagine if a kid was questioning their sexuality and watching this movie, they might feel affirmed by it. But also, I think it's it's doing male friendship an injustice to say that the only way you can have as intimate a friendship as the two boys do, established at the beginning of the movie, is is if you were in love. I mean, there's there's just something great about seeing two boys kind of find each other in that Mm -hmm. way. And the montage that I was talking about that got me all teary, I believe, ends with the two of them with their arms around each other, looking out Mm -hmm. at the ocean. You know, but but I don't think it necessarily needs to be a romantic interpretation. Yeah. And like, again, like they're just kids like and figuring out who they are. So, I mean, maybe the most explicit reading of this is just figuring out like what you want out of relationships, period, because what Luca gets from Julia and Alberto are very different, as we've talked about. Like, Alberto has, like, more confidence, has more street smarts, whereas Julia is a little more book smart. And he's equally fascinated with both parts of the world. And as it turns out at the end, he kind of gets to have his cake and eat it, too. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, Julia's headed back to her school in Geneva, and we've already sort of had it set up that that Luca would like to go, but it costs money to go. Plus, it, he's sort of still afraid that it's a, a human thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Alberto obviously mocks the mere idea of, of school and thinks it sounds really boring. But in the end, Alberto uses the prize money that they won in the triathlon to finance Luca going off to the school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, he sells the Vespa that they buy in order to let him go to school, which is a huge step for him in in emotional growth. So Luca goes with Julia to school and Julia's dad, Massimo, actually takes in Alberto as a sort of apprentice fisherman. So he stays in Porto Rosso with Massimo and presumably we'll see Luca and Julia again in the summer. 
And shout out to the credit sequence, the closing credits, which are extremely yeah. Studio Ghibli. They really reminded me of the My Neighbor Totoro closing credits, which also sort of alternate, you know, different drawings, little hand drawings of, yeah. of the character's future. It made me wish that the animation in this movie had been even more low tech. I think mm-hmm. it's trying to look less low tech than, than classic Pixar. But I mean, it made me wish it had been 2D drawn animation because those characters were so endearing in the sidelines of, of the credits. And so you get to see their further adventures. Mm-hmm. And also we should mention the post credit stinger that we spoiled with Ugo is not plot necessary. It's just nice because Ugo is such a distinct character. Yeah, it almost felt to me like something that was, must have been cut, you know, an idea for a scene that must have been cut that they just they had to put in there. But yeah, the whale carcass, the way he talks about the just <laughs> whale carcass floating into your mouth. It's so gross. It's so good. <laughs> But okay, since we've now talked about the whole story, this this is something that applies to the whole movie that I was going to ask you about, mm. which it seems like there's a strange relationship to the Italian language, which sometimes bothered me, which feeds into a bigger question that I think there's an inconsistency to how naive the boys are, the fish people yeah. are when they come out onto the land. I mean, it seemed at times as if Italian was being posited as the human language. I just wondered what language they were supposed to be speaking in and whether they had to master a new language when they came up on land. Because all of them, but especially the humans and especially Julia, are always throwing little tiny bits of Italian into their dialogue. And so it just made me wonder, in their world... Is that a foreign language? How are they experiencing it? I mean, I guess the idea was, and I'm just getting, I'm getting too technical. The idea is just to provide a little bit of local color and like a foothold of the sound of the language, maybe for kids who, you know, are just conceptualizing it or something. But it it bothered me every time there was a bit of Italian, especially when it was associated with humanness. Like I think when Luca very first becomes a a boy, before they ever enter the, the town, Alberto says something in Italian, and then he says, oh, what does that mean? And so then it made me just wonder what the language was supposed to signify. Yeah, I wonder, I think my bigger question with that is how they're going to deal with that in the Italian dub of this movie, because the boys speak in very standard English, and then suddenly will say things like, what's wrong with you, stupido? (laughs) And it's like, okay, like, what, why would you do that if you are technically speaking only Italian for this entire part. Like, there's yeah, that's no... Another, well, that's another layer. Yeah. It's like, why are you speaking sort of like faux-Italian-accented English? But that feeds into, and I'll just briefly visit it, my question about how innocent the boys are, or how little they mm-hmm. know. Obviously, Alberto thinks the, the stars are sardines, so, like, he doesn't know a lot about the world above mm-hmm. the surface. But... They, they seem to speak a language in which you could ask the question, what are you doing there, stupid? So why do they not know what it means to say, what are you doing, stupido? Right? Yeah. And there's just some other things like that. He doesn't know how to walk, and he has to be taught step by step how to walk, but he very quickly figures out, you know, sort of how to do everything else. I don't know. Yeah. I'm probably asking for a level of <laughs> internal consistency that is just pointless from a 90-minute fantasy fable about fish people. Um, but this is all part of me being not quite sure what universe we were in, in relation to the two realms. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I I think this definitely is a movie that benefits from not thinking about it too hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say, on my second almost complete watch, which I will complete after we have this conversation, <laughs> I found even more pleasure than the first time. And I sort of felt like my quibbles from the first time didn't matter. I mean, a spoiler mm-hmm. special is a place to bring up quibbles just because it's fun <laughs> to discuss them. But yeah. ultimately, none of these things will get in your way of thoroughly enjoying this movie and probably mm-hmm. even remembering it after. I mean, you specifically have said that this has stuck with you more than some of the high concept Pixar movies. I don't think I would say it's stuck with me, but it could not have gone down nicer. 
Yeah, I mean, like, I, I watched this with my boyfriend, and we have, since watching it, s- sometimes done the Uncle Lou, like, eh, very good, recommended, <laughs> just around the house. Like, there's just bits that stick out and are memorable to me in a very memeable way, I guess. All right, so we're both we're both putting our fins up. We're both sending people to Luca. <laughs> um, see it twice. I really, really do like it, and I think it, it feels like the right kind of movie for this summer when we needed something that was sweet and simple and refreshing and um, and not overly world building. So I'm sorry that I asked that of you, Luca. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for coming in to spoil it with me, Karen. No, so such a delight. Such a delight. And that's our show. You can subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like this show, you can rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you have suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil in the future or other feedback to share with us, send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer today is Morgan Flannery. For Karen Hahn, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>